0: hesitate to talk about episodes like this or games like this or movies like this or whatever because what I'm looking at is something that I know some people get pretty upset about and there's no way I can talk about it without pissing certain people off you know what I mean right maybe you don't I've come to discover that there's certain topics that no matter what you say about them some people will just get pissed off doesn't matter how you coach it doesn't matter how you preface it doesn't matter your tone doesn't matter your body language People will get pissed off about it. I've had this happen a lot to me uh, in my life, but especially since I started the show. And this is an episode that was written by a wheel wheelchair-bound person with a very clear and deliberate intent to basically talk about and examine the issues that go into people who are physically disabled. Like, that was the intent from word go. In fact, the gentleman questioned uh, Nemours, I believe. write his name down. I might not have. Um went into this script with the intent to write it for this purpose, and saying, you know, this has to be my script, a while ago. This is something he'd shopped around more than once. And it underwent it many rewrites. Now, as my wonderful sister pointed out, that doesn't necessarily speak to the quality of it. I mean, Lord knows I rewrite my own stuff all the time. I have, of the two books I've ever written, one of them every now and again I will go back and and rewrite it. Just polish the dialogue a little bit or change how some of the sentence structure is, you know, stuff like that. So I'm not, obviously I'm not giving credence to that. And he himself admitted he didn't spend the time on it that he really wanted to. But I bring that up because, in my opinion, this episode kind of fails as a disabled person's allegory. My opinion. Now, simply saying that is probably going to piss some people off, which is why I started with that preface. Because I am not a disabled person. I was actually wheelchair-bound for several months, and then I had to use uh, crutches, which I actually still have, for several months, about a year total between the two, and then I couldn't walk normally for about another year and a half or so after that, and then it took a significantly longer period of time before I get to the point where I could actually jog again. I actually still remember the first day I could jog again. It was an interesting experience. That's about as close as I've gotten to physically disabled. So I can't really speak to that with personal experience. I don't know what that's like. So I challenged myself to try and understand the perspective of someone who is frustrated and angry. Because from my perspective, and I know I'm an ignorant, stupid moron, if I see someone who is having trouble, I want to help them. I don't care if you happen to be physically disabled. You're having trouble and I want to help you. But that is my mentality. That's just the way I think. And I try to explain this. It's worth noting I actually have several people who are friends of mine in real life who are physically disabled. And I've made this point very clear to them. If I stoop down to help you out or if I hold the door for you, I'm not being condescending. I'm holding the door for you. And I have to make that point because from what I understand from several of these friends, most people are being condescending. Oh, you poor thing. Here, let me hold the door for you. Or it's easy to infer that they're being condescending, whether they are or not. Because what is happening is you're being reminded of your flaw. Now that's the part I can understand right there. Having someone constantly point out your own failings and misgivings, how you are flawed, or how you are a failure, or how you aren't good enough, that will grate on you. If you were someone who... Had such a thing happen to you temperately, you know, just, just for a couple of months, like I did, probably not a big deal. Now imagine you've been dealing with that for 20 years. Your skin's probably a little thin by that point, right? So I can, at least as an abstract, understand this concept. But I will have to say that the aggressiveness that Melora herself, is that her name? you know, I don't remember her name, Uh, puts out in the beginning part of the episode is too much. It is just plain too much. She is actively to the point of being rude to fellow officers in what may or may not be a military. At the very least, it's definitely a rigid command structure organization. I'm pretty sure if I was that much of a dick to my boss back in just a network engineering place, I would probably have a talking to. I probably wouldn't get fired on the spot, but they would pull me aside and be like, Look, dude, chill. So you get my point of why I felt that was a little bit over the top. It's also... One thing I find interesting is that the one of the two original points of the episode was she doesn't need to be cured because there's nothing wrong with her. God, I you know what, I don't even think I want to talk about that, because that is a whole other can of worms right there. The episode itself barely addresses that point. Like, I'll, I'll talk more about that later. In fact, it's the final point of my notes here. But from my perspective, I can't really bring myself to agree or disagree with that sentiment. See, here's the thing. On the one hand, I do agree. She's her, and there's nothing wrong with that. If she needs tools to accomplish things that other people can normally, that's fine. That's part of being a sentient sapient being. We use tools every day to accomplish things that we can't normally. I'm using one right now. And for those of you listening to the MP3, I just held up my glasses. (laughs) I mean, I could use a dozen examples in my room here, but this is the easiest and simplest way to explain this. I have bad eyesight. So for me, I don't really need to be cured I just need to use tools to accomplish it, what I can. And there's no shame in that. There's nothing wrong with that. So, you know, I wouldn't consider someone walking up to me, oh, you poor thing you can't see, right? Let's fix your eyes, right? To continue the analogy. But on the other hand, what if there was something that could fix my eyes? Yeah, I know, LASIK, blah, blah, blah. So this isn't a great analogy. But just imagine for a moment that there wasn't. And then, like, some doctor was able to come up with some kind of treatment for eyesight being bad. And that was a big deal. And it's like, huh, okay. Why would that be a bad thing to take? That's the part I'm not quite with. Because, and this is just my mentality, this is just my opinion, you are still using a tool to accomplish what you innately cannot. It's just a more long-term fix rather than a temporary one, rather than having these things sitting on my face all the time. I have the surgery and I drop the money and the time into getting this done, and now I can see without my glasses. I am still using a tool to accomplish this. It's just, a, it's, it's basically front-loaded rather than back-loaded, which is funny because that'll come up later too. So like I said, I'm not really the best person to discuss those issues. I, I I just don't think I have the mentality for it. If any of you guys out there have any thoughts or comments on this, I as ever would welcome them and maybe have a different insight or a different mentality. You can feel, feel free to yell at me and tell me I'm horrible as long as you do so with an intelligent and reasoned opinion. Now, if you just start slamming slurs at me in the comments then that's probably not going to accomplish anything so try to avoid that it's okay I have faith in most of my viewers to be better than that because I read the comments every day and you guys are kind of awesome now getting to the next point I was debating if the episode was badly written and I think it's more the fact that the core episode is a flawed premise and I don't mean the wheelchair stuff that's utterly unrelated what I mean is I found the structure of the episode to be absent. It's funny, I'm probably going to talk a lot about an episode there's nothing to talk about in because I have like seven bullet points here and that's it. There's nothing to talk about. This is, I've talked about this before when it comes to uh, analyzing a work. Every now and again there's a period of time where I'm just watching or playing and there's a huge stretch of time where I write nothing down because there's nothing to write down. I have nothing to talk about, nothing to discuss, nothing to share. This is another one of those episodes like that. I'm going through this like, okay, yep, and I don't skip ahead or anything, I'm just waiting for something to happen to talk about. This was an absent episode for me, I can't actively call it bad, but very forgettable. I wouldn't be surprised, in fact, I'd love to hear in the comments how many of you forgot about this episode until you either rewatched it or looked it up or were otherwise reminded of it. Which brings me to my theory of why that is, I think this is what I usually call a bullet point episode. Now this isn't bullet point syndrome, that's a sub tangent of the bullet point effect. Um, This is when people are like, okay we need to do X and we need to do Y and then they do it and then it's just kind of bland. Sometimes it's actively bad, but usually the result is something that just has no heart No passion, no strength, no oomph, and no lasting impact. And that is what I feel this episode is. And I can even tell you what those two bullet points are, because the actual people who made this show did. See, ignoring the writer, who wasn't actually a part of this... uh, Well, excuse me, he was obviously a part of this because he wrote the damn script, but... I read several different interviews. He had a huge piece in the D Space 9 uh, in, the, in the Star Trek uh, magazine. I actually got to read this huge article uh, of him interviewing about the creation of this episode. It's actually quite fascinating. I recommend it if you can find a copy of it. Um, but going through it, I saw interviews from a few other people as well and collating all these, what I see is two very powerful bullet points. One, we need to put the, you know we need to put these people in jeopardy, paraphrased. And two, we need to do a love story before Bashir. And those were statements from separate people, unconnected to each other, who, who basically went into this with the same mentality. Well, we have to do this, and we have to do this. This might be the most obvious example of the A-plot, B-plot problem I have ever seen. Ever. And it's funny, because the A-plot and the B-plot do mesh almost perfectly right at the end of the episode. And in a way that's even kind of cool. But the A-plot and the B-plot are so segregate other than that intermeshing. And the B-plot, in this case, the threat plot, the... God, I can't remember name. Weird face trying to threaten Quark means nothing, does nothing, and matters not at all. It is there because they had to threaten Quark. the, the, The creators of the show have admitted this. That part of the episode is there because we need to have a threat of the week. And when the actual creators of a show say, yeah, we we just need to do this because it's on a checklist, we got a problem. And then, of course, the reason she falls in love with Bashir, which I would point out is actually completely unnecessary to the development of the story, again, only happened because had to get that checklist, right? And I feel the episode is very, very weak as a consequence of these two things. Because if we pull the cork dude face thing out of it, and we pull the romance out of it, what we're left with is a very tight but very small character story. The kind of thing that I would love to see in Star Trek. I'd love to see more of in Star Trek. And in fact, is the kind of thing that DS9 is a perfect vehicle for. You have this little story about an alien, <laughs> you know, Melora, who just doesn't work the way we do. Now, in her case, it's not like the fact that she breathes different atmosphere or that she has to have, you know, that she's a tentacle monster or whatever. She literally grew up on a planet with vastly different gravity, something that's almost never even brought up in Star Trek. She basically doesn't have the ability to operate in, you know, standard G norms. And I like that. There's a lot of strength there. There's a lot you could do with that kind of a character, regardless of the, the you know, disabled allegory or anything like that. And they do some interesting stuff. Most of the stuff I liked in the episode was the stuff focused on her and her mentality regarding that. And then there's the threat of the week, and then there's the romance. Now, yes, I know I come off as very anti-romance in my show and in real life, but... um I really have to say that I don't feel like the romance—I, I, I, you know—I don't even want to use that word—the fling between her and Bashir meant anything at all. It was literally a fling of the week. It once again might be the most textbook example of fling of the week I've ever seen. Hi. Yeah. Mwah mwah mwah. Okay. Let's think about long-term relationships. Okay. Yeah. It's not going anywhere is i mean it's there's like nothing to it what does it do or affect or inform or change about bashir nothing what do we learn more about her regarding this nothing she still opens up to this to this man in a way that's awesome regardless of whether or not their lips touch and he still reveals more about his character And we actually do have a decent insight into Bashir's character, which I swear I'll talk about in a bit, as a result of his interactions with her. But neither of those revelations of the characters or relevance thereof is connected to the romance. They just decide to go, "Ah," because it was a checklist. It's a fling of the week. And that's my complaint. So moving on to the episode itself. Um, So she refuses help a lot. You know, doesn't want to be transported around. Doesn't want assistance leaving the port. Uh, doesn't. It, it, she. She's really irritated about having to have a co-pilot on a mission to the Gamma Quadrant. Now that part really stuck with me. Excuse me. Again, speaking as someone who understands what it's like to have your flaws pointed out to you and feeling horrible about them, I could understand not wanting pe- to be constantly reminded of the fact that you are flawed in some way or disabled in some way or lesser in some way or whatever word you want to use, it doesn't matter. You're different. I get that. The mission is where I draw the line. And I'm a little bit upset that she tried to push for this so hard. Remember, she is an ensign who is pretty recent out of the Academy and wants to go on solo missions in an in a in a station that doesn't have a lot of runabouts, that has no backup support. That's just a running theme, remember. So there's no, there's no help, really, other than from the station itself, into a place that's almost totally unexplored. I don't care if you're disabled, or a jellyfish, or purple. That's not happening. And I'm completely with Cisco on this one. No. You are going to go with a senior officer, at least for the first few flights. Because of course you freaking are. That's basic common sense. And I feel like that's the point at which she lost me as a character. The fact that she was trying to push for that thing specifically was actually irritating to me. <sighs> um, and now I know I want to comment on one weird thing here, because you're probably going to find this amusing, but people like her are the kind of people, if, if I have the time and regular occurrence with them, I tend to get along with in real life. Let me explain what I mean. Melora herself is not a particularly um, mean She's not legitimately mean. There's no malice there. There's no cruelty there. She attacks people constantly to put them on the defensive because it's kind of what she's become used to. But that is a shell or a mask, as I like to say. It is a defensive barrier. And I have gotten along with a lot of people like that in my life with patience and with understanding and with tolerance for the fact that they're going to keep coming after me until they realize I'm not reacting to it the same way other people are. I'm sure a lot of you know what I'm talking about. So I I actually imagine I'd probably get along with Melora quite well in real life. What I find sad, believable, but sad, is that Bashir is the first person who has done what I just referenced to her. She has gone through the entirety of the Academy, which is several years at Starfleet, and had whatever other assignments prior to this one. They vaguely talk about that, so I don't have any hard detail. And in all that time... No one else was able to crack that facade, to 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 reach out to the real person in there to help her to understand the interdependence of. Bashir had a line I wrote it down. Where is it? In space, we all depend on one another. One way, in some ways or another, in space we all depend on one another. I love that line, because it's it's perfect in in like three different ways. First of all, obviously, any kind of society dependence on one another is basically the, the most fundamental ground rock, ground bedrock of what a society is. Second point, this is Starfleet, whether it's a military organization or an organization that happens to be military. Whatever your perspective is, interdependence and, and relying on each other is an adamant and required part of it. There's a reason there's the chain of command, there's the reason there's teamwork and cooperation all that fun stuff and finally they're in space arguably the most terrifyingly dangerous environment that we know exists I know it's debatable but it's still up there which makes my point regardless of the previous two points anyone stuck together out in space kinda has to rely on other people to be able to 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 exist and and prosper in space I love that line and so it bothers me And I can find this believable, that no one else really thought about this. That no one else was patient enough, that no one else tried to reach out to this woman. Because, and I want to stress this, I don't think the relationship or romance, excuse me, fling aspect of this was relevant. I don't think Bashir was reaching out to her because, man, you're sexy. No. I think it was the doctor, Bashir, and the friend, Bashir, that was reaching out to her. And then the fling kind of came afterwards. That is my opinion. You may disagree on that if you want to. That's totally cool. But he continues to try, because that's kind of how Bashir is, and has been to date. He, of course, would understand a lot what it's like to be ostracized. Um, and <laughs> by the end of the episode, she's not just more open with him, she's more open in general. And that's kind of my point. She has come to relax a little bit. She's still got her barriers there, but they're nowhere near as high as they used to be. So she's interacting with other people easier and smoother because she has been made aware of this proper ability to depend on each other. I would think that would have been resolved in the first year at the Academy, assuming Starfleet was competent. But as I've pointed out many times, (laughs) moving on. So there's Klingon food, a Klingon restaurant. First of all, let me just start by saying... Blah, 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 blah. Now that I got that out of the way, I really like that there's a Klingon restaurant on DS9. In fact, I wish we saw more of this. You guys know that food's kind of a thing for me. Um, I've said many times famously that... I Famously, wow. <laughs> um, I swear I don't have that big of an ego. I have said many times, I don't know where it famously came from, uh, that the best... What was the word I was looking for? I've said many times that the, the best way to really start crafting a setting to do world building, which is something I am at least passively tolerable at, is to work on the food. What kinds of food? What kind of flavorings? Why is the food that way? What, and because when you start with food, you start to think about local flora and fauna and culture and environment and temperatures and availability of technology or availability of magic or whatever it is that you have from food a great deal can be gleaned about the way an entire society and culture exists And so I love the idea of multicultural, literally, food being on DS9. Now, we've already had some Cardassian stuff briefly here and there. And having this Klingon restaurant is a great step in that direction. I want more of this. I want to see a Ferengi restaurant. I want to see a a frickin' Bajoran restaurant. Although we've kind of seen bits of that. You know, I want to see more of these people and get across that idea. Because it's another thing that appeals to me. I love the concept that... The... I don't know how to put it. Look at real-life food here in here in the world that we exist on. Maybe. it might We might be in a holodeck, but look at it, right? Think about it for a second. Look how completely different dishes are from diff, different cultures and different places in this world. Now take that and magnify it, and you've got what we could have in Star Trek. It's another way to add more believability to the setting and add just a tiny little bit of flavor of nuance to other cultures. And I like that. Uh, By the way, huge props to the guy playing the Klingon chef. I thought he was perfect. Just, yep, grabs with his bare hands and dumps the food on there. And just, yep, yep. are Are these good worms? Love it. Perfect. Nothing else to add to there. Moving on. So then they start talking. And then he mentions that he went into tennis. Now, for those of you watching this show with me, Uh, who've never seen this show before, I want you to remember this fact. And I want you to remember this because I want to talk about a concept called backloaded lore building, okay? Or storytelling, if you prefer. Let me explain what I mean by that. Front-loaded storytelling is Babylon 5. Uh, JMS sat down and wrote out the rough structure and the skeleton of the characters and the concepts and the plots of Babylon 5 before he ever recorded anything. That's front-loaded you know what you're doing you know where you're going you can plan it all out and there's a lot of obvious benefits to front loading it's actually my preferred style as well but backloaded storytelling has its own benefits as well front loading is more about prep backloading is more about improv here's how this works in response to this specific story We will learn tiny little tidbits that were never intended to be connected, that were never intended to be part of an overall character arc about Bashir. Several characters actually, Bashir's not alone in this, but you know, and as we learn these tidbits and as we learn these character moments, later on they will have noticed these, you know, they jotted them down in a notebook or whatever, and they connected them into something. Now it was never intended to be that, remember. It's just that One writer decided to have a throwaway line about how he went into tennis and was, oh, he was terrible at it. And that will be a character point later for Bashir. Because that's backloaded. Make sense? So I just wanted to comment on that and the style. Because strange as this may sound, a lot of Deep Space Nine is backloaded storytelling. Huge amount of it. Remember, by the point in time we're at now, they're still trying to find their focus. They still haven't even decided on several aspects of the show that will be significant later. We don't even have the Dominion yet. It doesn't even exist. It hasn't even been thought of, even in a vague concept yet. Anyways. <clears throat> so I want to give huge props to the Wirework scene when they lower the gravity. First of all, they did a really good job of it, just in general. Good special effects, um, good presentation. Second of all, the, the characters did some good stuff there other than the kissy-kissy part. But I also want to mention something really quick that I'm sure most of you know, but it's kind of my job to talk about this, so maybe you don't. Originally, our good Melora, or at least her species, was going to be the science officer, Dax, the character Terry Farrell's playing. In other words, she was always supposed to be someone who was from a low-gravity world. They wanted to do this kind of stuff regularly with the exoskeleton or with the the chair or with the actual wireframe work on occasion. Problem was, that just wasn't feasible. Budget. Remember, DS9 still hasn't really... let's say, it doesn't really have the political standing it needs with the studio to have the financial budget it needs to really be the show it will eventually become. Not at this point. Remember, that's the whole reason that they let Lee Knollis die a few episodes ago. So they couldn't do it. So it was nice to see them at least do that, even just in this one episode, although by all accounts it was a huge hassle to do, and it took a lot of money and a lot of time to prep for. But I think the results spoke for themselves. It's actually a bit sad. With the many, many advancements in effects, both practical and special, as, as a computer-generated, that kind of thing, having a regular character on a show who you know floats around or is physically incapable of operating in normal gravity, would be the thing that would be a lot more feasible now. In fact, I was kind of hoping they would be on Discovery, you know, something like that, because we could do that now. <laughs> Anyways, just thought I'd share that. So, next point. Um, they talk about romance in Starfleet. I don't really have much to add to that, but I do find it always amusing how it's pretty much automatically assumed that any kind of long-term relationship across uh, within Starfleet is going to be something that's just going to be a failure. Now, there are actual reasons for it. There's a reason the old saying exists, don't date your coworkers. but at the same time, I do find it, like, a little bit sad that apparently that romances within Starfleet are so terrible that Dax has to think back into the centuries range to come up with anything that actually fit or worked. I mean, come on. (laughs) Is the divorce rate that bad? Are these all flings? Oh, silly me, of course they're all flings. What did I know? Anyways, there's a bit where Bashir, you know, she says, is this reversible? And his first reaction is, if you're not certain, you know, we need to not do this, and I like that. While Bashir obviously is in favor of this idea, he makes it very clear, this is her choice, to get to undertake the surgery or not, to, to have the changes to her body or not. This is her choice, and he doesn't push her on it, and I like that. Once again, that whole friend-slash-doctor mentality. Um, and that's part of why I like Bashir as a character, honestly, is that friend-slash-doctor mentality that he... Sometimes has, and then other times he's just a prat. <clears throat> so then a bunch of stuff happens. I have two notes in, this, in the column of my notes here. Um, one is asking how alien evil guy drinks. If you'll notice, they kind of cut away every time he does anything food or drink-wise. Like when he's got the glass to, to rise up, his face is actually off-camera. And when he goes to eat something, he just kind of starts munching. I actually think he didn't have anything in there at all. I'm not sure I didn't frame by frame it. Maybe I should have. But if you don't know what I'm talking about, because you aren't seeing the episode, or remember, he's got this thing right in front of his face here. You know, like this. It's incredibly awkward and uncomfortable, considering he uses his mouth to talk and eat and breathe. So, what the hell? I feel bad for the actor. And then Oda lets him go after he's pretty much flat admitted that he has a grudge against Cork, which is funny because Odo has no problem locking people up on suspicion. He's done this before and threatened to do this before. I don't want to call Odo a fascist, but he is certainly leaning in that direction with regards to his policies on law enforcement, so I'm not sure why he found there to be an issue this time. Nevertheless, I do have to point out that if Odo was actually on top of this, this whole situation probably would have never happened, which brings me to my point. You'll notice I only have those two notes. I actually have three notes total uh, about Evil McEvilface. I have absolutely nothing to say about him. His performance was lackluster and, frankly, empty. I don't necessarily blame the actor for that, but at the same time, there's just nothing there. Like He wasn't bad. He was dull. And I don't really feel any of the, I went to prison for nine years, now I'm going to kill you from him. And then he kills people because he's an idiot. Um, And I want to stress that word because, I mean, yeah, I've got nothing to lose. Okay, then why are you interested in money or escaping? (laughs) I'm sorry, your actions don't quite collate here. My favorite part, though, is when he calls up and says, let me go or I'll shoot a hostage then Cisco says, I'm willing to negotiate, and he says, okay, so he shoots someone, and they says, let me go or I'll shoot a hostage. Now, here's the thing. I've actually talked about hostage situations before. There's a lot of psychology and a lot of analysis way beyond my scope or capacity that has been done on hostage situations and how, let's boil it down to a simple sentence, it's always bad. There is no good solution once you've taken a hostage. None. There is no winning that. All there is is seeing how bad things get for everyone before you finally lose. Immediately killing a hostage first off before negotiations have even begun pretty much immediately gives them the, lets them skip ahead in the playbook, so to speak, to be like, oh, okay, well, now we're going to take this a lot more seriously. And funnily enough, that is exactly what Cisco does. Let them go. Let's get on the runabout and right after them. Where does he think he was going, anyways? And then he even says, we will all die. What? Now, then uh, Melora gets back up. I originally wrote down a note here, and then I wrote wrote, hmm next to it, because I'm not sure I agree with myself. Because I called her death fake out cheap. You guys know me and my opinion on that. But after some consideration, I've decided I don't think it's actually that cheap. It wasn't necessary. There's other ways to write this. However, I do like what was done with it, so I'm willing to let it go. Because this is probably the one part of the entire episode that really, really shines for me. The whole episode has been about how she is at a constant disadvantage to others. When she turns off the gravity in the runabout, everyone else is at a constant disadvantage compared to her. She is very accustomed to operating in low gravity. It's normal for her. It'd be like someone who doesn't know how to swim and someone who is an Olympic swimmer, both being tossed into a pool, to, to use a strange analogy. So it makes perfect sense that she would attempt that. It's a very clever way of resolving the situation without outpowering it, so it's outthinking the problem, which I'm in favor of, and it allows her to be the hero, which I'm totally cool with. And it's, and it, it all makes sense and lines up perfectly. I think that one scene, better than anything else, just clicks right into place. Now... Towards the end of the episode, there's a weird coda, a very weird coda between Bashir and Melora. And, whatever, is all i got to say about that. But I do have to comment on one thing. Bashir comments on something and then adds no emphasis or gravity to it because I don't think he realized, or the writer realized, that they had hit the nail on the head without meaning to. Bashir comments that at any point in time, she can change her mind and try this again in the future. This is not a ticking clock scenario. This is not some contrived alterance. This is a surgery that will be able to allow her to operate in normal gravity at the expense of the whatever she experienced before. She says no now. She even says, I don't think I'll ever change her mind. But she's in what, her 20s? <laughs> How many of you out there who, when you were in your 20s, uh, for those of you who are older than your 20s, um. Remember thinking things like, oh, this will always be or this will never be that have since been proven to be wrong. I'll go ahead and raise my hand on that because, duh, right? I thought that was a perfect point to end on and that they don't. Then they immediately try to take it back to the romance angle because this is a big step for her. It shouldn't be decided on on a whim. They tested it, okay? It was working, okay? And now she has time to to ponder it. Do I want to make this radical alteration to my life? Let me bring it back to the glasses thing, because I didn't use that analogy for no reason. I've actually legitimately thought, this is not a joke, that if I ever did finally get proper surgery for my eyes, I might still wear glasses. Purely because I think my face looks better with the look and because I'm very comfortable with them. I've been wearing glasses since I was... Nine? It's been a long damn time, is what I'm trying to say. Most of my life, the vast majority of my life, I'm very accustomed to them. But it would be nice to not, you know, to be able to look over my glasses like I'm doing right now and still be able to see just fine. I mean, this is just blur. (laughs) I can see the blue lights of the camera there. That's about it. (laughs) You know? But having that option, I don't have, like, if I had that option, which I guess I technically do, but, you know, if I had that option, I could just choose to do that. That's up to me. So I understand that mentality of maybe I don't want to lose this. Maybe I want to hold on to this. Now, in my case, it's not a perfect analogy because I can always just put the glasses back on. In her case, it's probably unreversible. But that is my point. This is still be a big deal to me. Hers is non-reversible, and therefore she should spend more than one episode thinking about it. She should spend plenty of time thinking about it, years even. Really make sure she's sure about that. And even if she decides no. It almost doesn't matter. I, I, I mean, it, it matters, but my point is, it's not like saying no removes the option. It will still be there in the future. And I like that. And I guess that's all I really have to say about this episode. I apologize for rambling on. I'm curious how long this one is, because my seven note bullet points there. But I hope you've enjoyed, and I'll be seeing you guys next time.